Capital by Karl Marx, afterward to the second edition, 1873. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. This reading by Karl Manchester, 2007. Capital by Karl Marx, afterward to the second edition, 1873. To the present moment, political economy in Germany is a foreign science. Gustav von Gulich, in his historical description of commerce, industry, etc., especially in the two first volumes published in 1830, has examined at length the historical circumstances that prevented, in Germany, the development of the capitalist mode of production, and consequently the development in that country of modern bourgeois society. Thus the soil whence political economy springs was wanting. This science had to be imported from England and France as a ready-made article. Its German professors remained schoolboys. The theoretical expression of a foreign reality was turned in their hands into a collection of dogmas, interpreted by them in terms of the petty trading world around them, and therefore misinterpreted. The feeling of scientific impotence, a feeling not wholly to be repressed, and the uneasy consciousness of having to touch on a subject in reality foreign to them, was but imperfectly concealed, either under a parade of literary and historical erudition, or by an admixture of extraneous material, borrowed from the so-called chimeral sciences, a medley of smatterings, through whose purgatory the hopeless candidate for the German bureaucracy has to pass. Since 1848, capitalist production has developed rapidly in Germany, and at the present time it is in the full bloom of speculation and swindling. But fate is still unpropitious to our professional economists. At the time when they were able to deal with political economy in a straightforward fashion, modern economic conditions did not actually exist in Germany. And as soon as these conditions did come into existence, they did so under circumstances that no longer allowed of their being really and impartially investigated within the bounds of the bourgeois horizon in so far, i.e., as the capitalist regime is looked upon as the absolutely final form of social production, instead of as a passing historical phase of its evolution. Political economy can remain a science only so long as the class struggle is latent, or manifests itself only in isolated and sporadic phenomena. Let us take England. Its political economy belongs to the period in which the class struggle was as yet undeveloped. Its last great representative, Ricardo, in the end, consciously makes the antagonism of class interests, of wages and profits, of profits and rent, the starting point of his investigations, naively taking this antagonism for a social law of nature. But by this start, the science of bourgeois economy had reached the limits beyond which it could not pass. Already in the lifetime of Ricardo, and in opposition to him, it was met by criticism, in the person of Sismondi. Footnote. See my work, Zur Critique, etc., page 39. End footnote. The succeeding period, from 1820 to 1830, was notable in England for scientific activity in the domain of political economy. It was the time, as well as the vulgarising and extending of Ricardo's theory, as to the contest of that theory with the old school. Splendid tournaments were held. What was done then, 
is little known to the continent generally, because the polemic is for the most part scattered through articles in reviews, occasional literature and pamphlets. The unprejudiced character of this polemic, although the theory of Ricardo already serves, in exceptional cases, as a weapon of attack upon bourgeois economy, is explained by the circumstances of the time. On the one hand, modern industry itself was only just emerging from the age of childhood, as is shown by the fact that with the crisis of 1825 it for the first time opens the periodic cycle of its modern life. On the other hand, the class struggle between capital and labour is forced into the background, politically by the discord between the governments and the feudal aristocracy gathered around the Holy Alliance on the one hand, and the popular masses, led by the bourgeoisie on the other, economically by the quarrel between industrial capital and aristocratic landed property, a quarrel that in France was concealed by the opposition between small and large landed property, and that in England broke out openly after the Corn Laws. The literature of political economy in England at this time calls to mind the stormy forward movement in France after Dr. Quesnay's death, but only as a St. Martin's summer reminds us of spring. With the year 1830 came the decisive crisis. In France and in England, the bourgeoisie had conquered political power. Thenceforth, the class struggle, practically as well as theoretically, took on more and more outspoken and threatening forms. I sounded the knell of scientific bourgeois economy. It was thenceforth no longer a question whether this theorem or that was true, but whether it was useful to capital or harmful, expedient or inexpedient, politically dangerous or not. In place of disinterested inquirers, there were hired prize-fighters. In place of genuine scientific research, the bad conscience and the evil intent of apologetic. Still, even the obtrusive pamphlets with which the Anti-Corn Law League, led by the manufacturers Cobbin and Bright, deluged the world, have a historic interest, if no scientific one, on account of their polemic against the landed aristocracy. But since then, the free trade legislation, inaugurated by Sir Robert Peel, has deprived vulgar economy of this its last sting. The Continental Revolution of 1848-9 also had its reaction in England. Men who still claimed some scientific standing and aspired to be something more than mere sophists and sycophants of the ruling classes tried to harmonise the political economy of capital with the claims no longer to be ignored of the proletariat. Hence a shallow syncretism of which John Stuart Mill is the best representative. It is a declaration of bankruptcy by bourgeois economy, an event on which the great Russian scholar and critic N. Chernyshevsky has thrown the light of a master mind in his Outlines of Political Economy according to Mill. In Germany, therefore, the capitalist mode of production came to a head after its antagonistic character had already in France and England shown itself in a fierce strife of classes. And meanwhile, moreover, the German proletariat had attained a much more clear class consciousness than the German bourgeoisie. Thus, at the very moment when a bourgeois science of political economy seemed at last possible in Germany, it had in reality become impossible. Under these circumstances, its professors fell into two groups. The one set, prudent, practical business folk, flocked to the banner of Bastia, the most superficial, 
and therefore the most adequate, representative of the apologetic of vulgar economy. The other, proud of the professional dignity of their science, followed John Stuart Mill in his attempt to reconcile irreconcilables. Just as in the classical time of bourgeois economy, so also in the time of its decline, the Germans remained mere schoolboys, imitators and followers, petty retailers and hawkers, in the service of the great foreign wholesale concern. The peculiar historic development of German society, therefore, forbids in that country all the original work in bourgeois economy, but not the criticism of that economy. So far as such criticism represents a class, it can only represent the class whose vocation in history is the overthrow of the capitalist mode of production and the final abolition of all classes, the proletariat. The learned and unlearned spokesmen of the German bourgeoisie tried at first to kill Das Kapital by silence, as they had managed to do with my earlier writings. As soon as they found that these tactics no longer fitted the conditions of the time, they wrote, under pretense of criticising my book, descriptions, quote, for the tranquillization of the bourgeois mind, end quote. But they found in the workers' press, see, for example, Joseph Dietzken's articles in the Volkstart, antagonists stronger than themselves, to whom, down to this very day, they owe a reply. Footnote. The mealy-mouthed babblers of German vulgar economy fell foul of the style of my book, no one can feel the literary shortcomings in Das Kapital more strongly than I myself. Yet I will, for the benefit and enjoyment of these gentlemen and their public, quote in this connection one English and one Russian notice. The Saturday Review, always hostile to my views, said in its notice of the first edition, quote, The presentation of the subject invests the driest economic questions with a certain peculiar charm. End quote. The St. Petersburg Journal, Sankt Petersburgsky Viedomosti, in its issue of April 20th, 1872, says, quote, The presentation of the subject, with the exception of one or two exceptionally special parts, is distinguished by its comprehensibility by the general reader, its clearness, and, in spite of the scientific intricacy of the subject, by an unusual liveliness. In this respect, the author in no way resembles the majority of German scholars who write their books in a language so dry and obscure that the heads of ordinary mortals are cracked by it. End quote. End footnote. An excellent Russian translation of Das Kapital appeared in the spring of 1872. The edition of 3,000 copies is already nearly exhausted. As early as 1871, A. Sierba, Professor of Political Economy in the University of Kiev, in his work David Ricardo's Theory of Value and of Capital, referred to my theory of value, of money and of capital, as in its fundamentals a necessary sequel to the teaching of Smith and Ricardo. That which astonishes the Western European in the reading of this excellent work is the author's consistent and firm grasp of the purely theoretical position. That the method employed in Das Kapital has been little understood, is shown by the various conceptions, contradictory one to another, that have been formed of it. Thus the Paris Revue Positiviste reproaches me, in that, on the one hand, I treat economics metaphysically, and on the other hand, imagine, confine myself to the mere critical analysis of actual facts, 
instead of writing receipts, contest ones, for the cookshops of the future. In answer to the reproach in Ray Metaphysics, Professor Sieber has it, quote, In so far as it deals with actual theory, the method of Marx is the deductive method of the whole English school, a school whose failings and virtues are common to the best theoretical economists, end quote. Monsieur Bloch, Le théoricien du socialisme en Allemagne, extrait du journal des économistes, juillet et août 1872, makes the discovery that my method is analytic and says, quote, Par cet ouvrage, Monsieur Marx se classe parmi les esprits analytiques les plus éminents. End quote. With this work, Mr. Marx puts himself among the most eminent of analytical minds. German reviews, of course, shriek out at Hegelian sophistics. The European messenger of St. Petersburg, in an article dealing exclusively with the method of Das Kapital, May number, 1872, pages 427 to 436, finds my method of inquiry severely realistic, but my method of presentation, unfortunately, German dialectical. It says, quote, at first sight, if the judgment is based on the external form of the presentation of the subject, Marx is the most ideal of ideal philosophers, always in the German, i.e. the bad sense of the word. But in point of fact, he is infinitely more realistic than all his forerunners in the work of economic criticism. He can in no sense be called an idealist. End quote. I cannot answer the writer better than by aid of a few extracts from his own criticism, which may interest some of my readers, to whom the Russian original is inaccessible. After a quotation from the preface to my Criticism of Political Economy, Berlin, 1859, pages 4-7, to seven, where I discuss the materialistic basis of my method, the writer goes on, quote, The one thing which is of moment to Marx is to find the laws of the phenomena with whose investigation he is concerned. And not only is that law of moment to him which governs these phenomena, in so far as they have a definite form and mutual connection within a given historical period, of still greater moment to him is the law of their variation, of their development, i.e. of their transition from one into another, from one series of connections into a different one. This law, once discovered, he investigates in detail the effects in which it manifests itself in social life. Consequently, Marx only troubles himself about one thing, to show, by rigid scientific investigation, the necessity of successive determinate orders of social conditions, and to establish, as impartially as possible, the facts that serve him for fundamental starting points. For this is quite enough if he proves at the same time both the necessity of another order into which the first must inevitably pass over, and this all the same, whether men believe or do not believe it, whether they are conscious or unconscious of it. Marx treats the social movement as a process of natural history, governed by laws not only independent of human will, consciousness and intelligence, but rather, on the contrary, determining that will, consciousness and intelligence. If in the history of civilization the conscious element plays a part so subordinate, then it is self-evident that a critical inquiry whose subject matter is civilization can, less than anything else, have for its basis any form of, or any result of, consciousness. That is to say, 
that not the idea but the material phenomena alone can serve as its starting point, such an inquiry will confine itself to the confrontation and the comparison of a fact, not with ideas, but with another fact. For this inquiry, the one thing of moment is that both facts can be investigated as accurately as possible, and that they actually form, each with respect to the other, different momenta of an evolution. But most important of all is the rigid analysis of the series of successions, of the sequences and concatenations in which the different stages of such an evolution present themselves. But, it will be said, the general laws of economic life are one and the same, no matter whether they are applied to the present or the past. This Marx directly denies. According to him, such abstract laws do not exist. On the contrary, in his opinion, every historical period has laws of its own. As soon as society has outlived a given period of development, and is passing over from one given stage to another, it begins to be subject also to other laws. In a word, economic life offers us a phenomenon analogous to the history of evolution on other branches of biology. The old economists misunderstood the nature of economic laws when they likened them to the laws of physics and chemistry. A more thorough analysis of phenomena shows that social organisms differ among themselves as fundamentally as plants or animals. Nay, one and the same phenomenon falls under quite different laws in consequence of the different structure of those organisms as a whole, of the variations of their individual organs, of the different conditions in which those organs function, etc. Marx, for example, denies that the law of population is the same at all times and in all places. He asserts, on the contrary, that every stage of development has its own law of population. With the varying degree of development of productive power, social conditions and the laws governing them vary too. Whilst Marx sets himself the task of following and explaining from this point of view the economic system established by the sway of capital, he is only formulating in a strictly scientific manner the aim that every accurate investigation into economic life must have. The scientific value of such an inquiry lies in the disclosing of the special laws that regulate the origin, existence, development, death of a given social organism and its replacement by another and higher one. And it is this value that, in point of fact, Marx's book has. End quote. Whilst the writer pictures what he takes to be actually my method, in this striking and as far as concerns my own application of it, generous way, what else is he picturing but the dialectic method? Of course, the method of presentation must differ in form from that of inquiry. The latter has to appropriate the material in detail to analyse its different forms of development to trace out their inner connection. Only after this work is done can the actual movement be adequately described. If this is done successfully, if the life of the subject matter is ideally reflected as in a mirror, then it may appear as if we had before us a mere a priori construction. My dialectical method is not only different from the Hegelian, but is its direct opposite. To Hegel, the life process of the human brain, i.e. the process of thinking which, under the name of the idea, he even transforms into an independent subject, is the demiurgus of the real world, and the real world is only the external phenomenal form of the idea. With me, on the contrary, the ideal is nothing else than the material world reflected by the human mind, 
and translated into forms of thought. The mystifying side of Hegelian dialectic I criticised nearly thirty years ago, at a time when it was still the fashion. But just as I was working at the first volume of Das Kapital, it was the good pleasure of the peevish, arrogant, mediocre, epigonoi, who now talk large in cultured Germany, to treat Hegel in the same way as the brave Moses Mendelssohn in Lessing's time at treated Spinoza, i.e. as a dead dog. I therefore openly avowed myself the pupil of that mighty thinker, and even here and there, in the chapter on the theory of value, coquetted with the modes of expression peculiar to him. The mystification which dialectic suffers in Hegel's hands by no means prevents him from being the first to present its general form of working in a comprehensive and conscious manner. With him it is standing on its head. It must be turned right side up again, if you would discover the rational kernel within the mystical shell. In its mystified form, dialectic became the fashion in Germany, because it seemed to transfigure and to glorify the existing state of things. In its rational form, it is a scandal and abomination to bourgeoisdom and its doctrinaire professors, because it includes in its comprehension an affirmative recognition of the existing state of things, at the same time also the recognition of the negation of that state, of its inevitable breaking up, because it regards every historically developed social form as in fluid movement, and therefore takes into account its transient nature not less than its momentary existence, because it lets nothing impose upon it, and is in its essence critical and revolutionary. The contradictions inherent in the movement of capitalist society impress themselves upon the practical bourgeois most strikingly in the changes of the periodic cycle, through which modern industry runs, and whose crowning point is the universal crisis. That crisis is once again approaching, although as yet but in its preliminary stage, and by the universality of its theatre and the intensity of its action, it will drum dialectics even into the heads of the mushroom upstarts of the new Holy Prusso-Germanic Empire. Karl Marx, London, January 24th, 1873 End of Afterward